Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Moises Random, the director of the Future Venezuela Initiative and fellow of the Americas program at CSIS. With how professional the Mexican but are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Yesterday, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were inaugurated as president and vice president of the United States following a remarkably volatile transition period. As of yesterday, the Democratic Party controls the executive branch and both chambers of Congress, indicating a potential shift in U.S. foreign policy in the region and beyond. This week, to discuss some of these key challenges and changes we may expect down the road, we're joined by Ambassador William Brownfield. As most of you know, he's a CSIS senior advisor and has a remarkable gover government career on his belt. Ambassador, the Biden-Harris administration officially took office yesterday, thought it will take several months for the new administration to appoint key positions, including Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, some cabinet positions and ambassadorships. So I would like to get your 30,000-foot view on the incoming administration's priority towards the region. What issues do you think will be at the top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda? Moises and listeners, welcome to the first day of the new epoch in U.S. history as the Biden administration takes office and begins its term. Joe Biden comes to office as the president clearly believing, in my opinion correctly, that there are many issues and problems that have been created in U.S. foreign relations by the previous administration. And let's be honest with ourselves, despite the fact that this conversation is going to be overwhelmingly about Latin America, Mr. Biden is going to focus on other issues as well, such as the relationship with the world's most important emerging power in the 21st century, the People's Republic of China, or Russia and the U.S.-Russia relationship, Iran, and Mr. Biden's belief that this has been mismanaged for the past four years, the relationship with our most important alliance in the world, NATO, North Korea, and nuclear weapons, the pandemic. In other words, there is no shortage of issues outside of the region that the Biden administration is going to believe it has to focus upon in the early months of its administration. Within the region, may I suggest to you, and I, I've given this some thought and obviously have had some conversations with members of the incoming team, I would offer maybe four at most five areas within the Western Hemisphere where I would predict you'd see this administration giving some considerable focus. First, Central America, where as vice president, Joe Biden actually spent a great deal of time during the last two years yes. of the Obama administration and a belief that he has to fix something there. Mexico, obviously, for obvious geographic, not to mention migration reasons, the most important Latin American relationship for the United States of America, where I suspect the Biden administration believes it must repair something that is broken. Cuba, as vice president, Mr. Biden did participate in and strongly supported the Obama administration's decision to restore normal diplomatic relations with Cuba. And I suspect this administration believes it has to work to fix that problem as well over the last four years. 
And finally, Venezuela, where I can't tell you yet whether the new administration believes it needs a new policy or adjustments to an old policy. But one thing to keep in mind, this administration undoubtedly noticed that they did not win the election in Florida. And one of the reasons, therefore, was the presence, the positions, and the votes of the Venezuelan American community in Florida tied to the larger and more long-established Cuban-American community in South Florida. So I predict for political reasons, if not for foreign policy reasons, we will see considerable focus by this administration on the Venezuela issue. Thank you, Ambassador. Let's talk more about Venezuela then. I mean, now as the new administration comes in, Venezuela, as you know, is at a critical point. The Maduro regime has just sworn in a new loyalist national assembly following the rig elections on December 6th. The interim government led by Juan Guaido is, is still leading the opposition, but its standing among international allies has shifted. For example, the EU, the European Union, continues to support Guaido, but no longer recognizes him as a legitimate interim president. So how do you think the Biden administration should build upon the Trump's administration efforts? Should the U.S. continue its maximum pressure campaign, for example? First, Moises, let me tell you what I, Bill Brownfield, believe that the Biden administration should do. I believe the maximum pressure campaign, the maximum pressure strategy was the correct strategy to apply to Mr. Maduro's regime in Venezuela. That said, my name is not Joe Biden, and I am not the new president of the United States of America. (laughs) What I have urged in my conversations since the election, and what I continue to urge, is to accept that a new administration will want to establish its own policy and its own strategy, to accept that the Biden administration will bring with it many people who have expressed skepticism about maximum pressure and sanctions and too much pressure or priority for sanctions and have urged instead more dialogue, more discussion, perhaps even negotiations. And my point, my position, my argument with the incoming Maduro team has been to agree to one single, simple, strategic objective in terms of U.S. policy toward Venezuela. That succinctly stated is Maduro must go. If you accept that, then you can have your big tent where many people with many different ideas can get together. Some will argue for more sanctions or less sanctions. Some will argue for more humanitarian intervention. Some will argue for more international cooperation. Some will argue for dialogue or negotiations. You can say to them all, you may pursue these policies. They are tactical approaches, but the strategic objective, the price of admission into the big tent is to accept as your fundamental strategic objective, Maduro must go. Do you want elections? Fine. First, Maduro must go. 
do you argue for dialogue? Fine. But the opening line has to be dialogue to produce the departure of Maduro. Do you want more international cooperation? Yes, but everyone must agree that the purpose is the departure of Mr. Maduro. That, in my opinion, is the way we can argue with some hope of success with this new administration on how to pursue new ideas, but not lose sight of the overwhelmingly most important strategic objective of all, and that is the departure of Nicolás Maduro. Yeah, thank you. I think that was very clear, Ambassador. Okay. So Venezuela, you know, was front and center in the Trump administration regional foreign policy. But the Biden administration is likely to switch the order of priority, perhaps focusing on other important areas. Like you mentioned before, the Northern Triangle is an issue. Mexico is a neighboring country and one of the biggest bilateral economic trades that the U.S. has and the Caribbean, including Cuba, and, and you know, so on. There's so many other countries and issues. So I just want to ask you, what will this shift of focus or this potential or eventual shift of focus or priority mean for Venezuela? If we find a Biden administration not focusing only and uh, mostly on Venezuela, but broadening their focus in other countries in the region, what will this mean for Venezuela and the region as well? To begin with, and this is why I said at the start of this discussion, I, I actually believe that the Trump administration's approach to Venezuela was correct, the approach of maximum pressure. But I have also said, I believe publicly, certainly privately, that I believe the Trump administration made many, many errors and mistakes in terms of its overall global foreign policy. But just as a broken clock tells the time correctly, twice a day on a rotary clock and once a day on a digital So the Trump administration's foreign affairs clock was correct perhaps once in the course of any day, and that was Venezuela. That said, this is a new administration, and I can assure you that since George Washington became president, or I guess left the presidency in 1796, no U.S. president has come to office shouting the battle cry, we will maintain and continue all the policies of our predecessor. By definition, by logic, mm -hmm. Mr. Biden wishes to have a new policy and new ideas. And in Venezuela, may I suggest to you that these will both be problems where they're walking away from things that we should be doing, but also opportunities to incorporate some new ideas into perhaps a broader and therefore a more impactful approach to the Maduro regime. Words that come to mind from my perspective right now are flexibility as we take a look at the policy, but constantly keeping the focus on the fundamental strategic objective the departure of Mr. Maduro, Maduro de Landum Est, as the ancient Roman Senator Cicero, or maybe it's Cato, I can't recall which one <laughs> he used to say at the end of each of his speeches. But ojo, Moises, may I remind you, as we assess how to deal with a new administration's new policy toward Venezuela, let's keep in mind my point earlier in this discussion. There was a political impact that actually was one of the reasons why this election and its final yes. outcome stretched yes. out so long in the United States of America. 
Unlike in 2016, in 2020, the state of Florida, the, mm -hmm. I believe, mm -hmm. third most populous state in the union, voted for Mr. Trump rather than for the Democratic candidate. One of the reasons that is given is the South Florida Hispanic community overwhelmingly the Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans. What does this mean in practical terms, in political terms? It means there is some degree of leverage. There is a domestic political reason why this administration and the political party that it represents wishes to have a positive relationship with the Venezuelan American community. And what does this say to me? Moises, as a wise man, has been saying for the last three years about the Venezuelan diaspora throughout the entire world, up to 5.5 million Venezuelan citizens dispersed among 30 or 40 different countries, but a very large number in the United States of America. The diaspora must organize, the diaspora yes. must become a political force of its own, whether in the United States or Spain or Colombia or any other country in the world. Organize, organize, organize. That's what I conclude from what happened on November 3rd of this past year. Ambassador, let me just follow up on that. I think that's a critical point, no? Regarding the issue of TPS, no, because when, when I hear you saying that the Venezuelan diaspora should be organized, then immediately it comes to mind so many Venezuelans who are struggling right now because they simply don't have the right paperwork to get settled and to, you know, get a job and get even an education here. So my question is, now that the, both chambers of Congress and the executive branch are in control of the Democratic Party, and by the way, the Biden campaign was very frontline on suggesting to approve a TPS on Venezuela, do you see a good chance to that happen maybe this year? Despite, as you say, we have so many other issues on the agenda, including COVID-19. What's your thoughts on the TPS issue on this? Moises, I believe TPS falls precisely in the category of things that I'm talking about when I say the importance of organizing the Venezuelan diaspora throughout the world and most assuredly within the United States of America. That at the end of the day is not, I would say it's not at all, but it is certainly at least not principally a foreign affairs decision. That is a domestic political decision. And you know as well as I do, since I am talking to an American citizen who is a member of the Venezuelan diaspora, in a domestic political decision, the political organization, the ability to have a political impact, to connect with members of Congress, to engage with the media and the press, to express their views publicly, to suggest or argue or threaten that there will be electoral consequences if their views are not taken into account, this is the way you get a domestic political decision made in the correct manner. Yeah. And I'm not talking about something that is wrong or harmful. Good God. I mean, APAC and the Israeli community, Canaf and the Cuban American community, virtually every single demographic group in the United States of America has some sort of organization that represents its interests. And I would argue emphatically that it is very much in the interest of the Venezuelan American community and the broader Venezuelan diaspora 
to organize itself in that way for two reasons. One, to be able better to support the interim government of Juan Guaido in Venezuela today, and second, to represent their own interests as a community in the country where they are located, in this case, in the United States of America. Is this likely to be addressed? I actually think it is, because, oh, let's go back to the point I've already made twice before. I believe yes. the Democratic Party leadership was surprised by the results of the election in Florida this year, and they will be looking for ways to address that political reality. Thank you. I think that was very clear. Of course, Ambassador, you have, in addition to be ambassador to Venezuela, you have also been ambassador to Colombia and Chile. So it would be great to hear your thoughts on those countries as well. Not too long ago, Chile was perceived as a model for the region. It was the first South American country to join the OECD and has historically been one of the least corrupt countries in the region. Chile is going to be rewriting its own constitution after a rewrite was approved with 78% support in a plebiscite last year. Their current constitution dates back to the Pinochet era and contains several stipulations that have become pretty controversial, including some clauses about solidifying private sector control over the education, pensions, subsidies, and so on. So I just want to ask you, what economic and political developments might we expect from Chile in the coming year? And what do you think the Biden administration should keep in mind as it crafts its policy toward Chile? Moises, you have correctly noted certainly the image that Chile wishes to project, and I think largely a correct image, that Chile is the country in all of Latin America that works best. Its political and democratic institutions work well. Its rule of law system, while not necessarily efficient, is effective and is respected throughout the country. Its economy has consistently performed over the decades better than any other economy in Latin America. It has done so through a process of lowering the barriers, the obstacles, the restrictions in terms of economic growth and development and in terms of, of open and free trade throughout the world. It is, in short, the Chile model, which has, when you're looking at it over the last, what, 30 years, or if you yeah. include some of the Pinochet era, perhaps the last 40 years, has worked better over nearly half a century than any other model found throughout the Americas. That said, as you have correctly noted, they are going to go through a process now to amend and correct some elements of the Constitution that they inherited from General Pinochet, part of which was obviously designed to ensure that he and the Chilean military in general were not going to be held accountable more than they wanted to be, and both for reasons of justice, but also for reasons that, that time has passed. I mean, yeah. most of the individuals at issue now have either passed on, they've died, or are now so ancient that the people are no longer looking at them. But they are getting the Constitution adjusted is going to be a major political effort, because obviously, once you open that box up, what has happened is that many other communities and groups of people have concluded their issues that they would like to see addressed in an amended Constitution as well. I suspect they are going to succeed. I suspect as well that what we are going to see as Chile, along with the rest of the Western Hemisphere, including the United States, as they pull out 
of the pandemic and are able to get back to more to business as usual, you will find an explosion of growth in Chile, as I predict you will find in most of the rest of, of Latin America, as people are able to get back to work. In the case of Chile, as the mining sector gets back to full steam, as the agricultural sector gets back to full steam, as the financial sector does, and as their trade mechanism does, I suspect you'll find that their economic growth will be eye-popping, although not as much as perhaps several other countries. Politically, I suspect what we're going to see in Chile is at least two groups of people, and maybe even three, that will continue to be visible and audible, both on the streets and in communities. The students, who in any country uh, tend to be on the frisky side, are certainly going to continue to have their voices heard. The youth more broadly, particularly in southern Chile, the indigenous community, overwhelmingly Mapuche, are pressing back at what they see as some encroachments into their traditional areas south of the Rio Bio Bio. And we will see, I suspect, more political tension down in those areas where the indigenous population constitutes perhaps not a majority, but a very substantial minority. And Chile has been anguishing as well, literally since my time, which was 2002 to 2004, with issues of income inequality, the separation, if you will, between how much the top 10% earn in a given year and how much the bottom 10% earn in a given year. Part of that is just endemic to a country whose economy is growing and growing dramatically. But part of it, I suspect, is a political issue and an economic issue that the Chileans have to address. What should the Biden administration be looking for? I'd offer a, a couple of quick thoughts. One is leadership, how to engage Chile as a model for the rest of the region as they emerge from the pandemic. I acknowledge Chile, like every other country in Latin America right now, is hunkered down as they are attempting to fight off coronavirus and eventually be able to emerge. But the emergence, I suspect, should be in the course of this year or next year. How will the Biden administration try to use them or to work with them as regional leaders? And in one area where I would certainly point to would be the Lima Group, which, as you well know, is that group of Western Hemisphere nations that are taking the lead in trying to to work collectively to apply pressure to Mr. Maduro to eventually solve the tragedy, uh, not just the crisis, but the tragedy of Venezuela today. But I would also then offer one additional thought for the Biden administration based upon more than 20 years of engagement off and on with Chile. When the Chilean government wishes to engage in an issue, they speak with understandable pride about the Chilean model and how it has produced success, both political stability and economic growth for decades. When they do not wish to engage, then you hear poor little Chile, pobre Chile tan pequeño, which really cannot be asked to take on too big a role. You somehow have to hit the sweet spot and find those issues where the Chileans are willing to exercise some leadership, get them or encourage them to do that with support and cooperation, while at the same time, as soon as you hear the complaint about poor little Chile, realize that what they are really saying is, this is not an issue in which we wish to engage. That was a good point, especially the Lima Group issue. I remember Chile was one of the most vocal and leaders on the Lima Group. And, and now recently haven't seen them, you know, in that same leadership position. So that's, that's an important one that I think we need to rescue. 
I would like to ask you a similar question just to wrap up on Colombia. You serve as U.S. ambassador to Colombia and you were the assistant secretary of state for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, or INL. As you know very well, the U.S. and Colombia have a critical partnership. Colombia has been implementing its peace accord since 2016, and the U.S. has supported key aspects of the accords, including land reform, rural development, and transitioning communities from illicit crops to the other forms of income. So my two last questions for you, ambassadors, how is the implementation of these accords going in your view? And what ways has the U.S.-Colombian partnership evolved over the past few years? And what changes might we see with the incoming Biden-Harris administration on this? Moises, those are the correct questions. And I would say, in many ways, you may have noticed when I suggested kind of the four areas that I predicted the new Biden administration will focus on in Latin America. And I suggested Central America, Mexico, Cuba, and Venezuela. You no doubt noticed what was missing from, uh, <laughs> from that list. And it is notable only because I would argue for most of the past 20, more than 20 years, Colombia has been far and away the single most important country for the United States of America in terms of its cooperation and engagement in the region, for many of the reasons that you've already described. While this is, it sometimes causes some concern to Colombians, the truth of the matter is this is both natural and it actually is good news. Colombia had an extremely close relationship with the United States for 10 or 15 years because Colombia was in a state of crisis. And the crisis was economic, it was security, it was drugs, it was law enforcement, it was corruption, it was human rights. It was a country that was literally in a fight for its survival as a functioning nation state. Colombia is no longer a country in crisis. The truth of the matter is Colombia at this point has an economy that at least before the pandemic was cooking at a rate faster and hotter than almost any other economy in Latin America. And Colombia was beginning to engage in its rightful place as a hemispheric leader, particularly on matters related to security and law enforcement. Many other countries in the hemisphere, not to mention the rest of the world, actually tried to get access to Colombian expertise to have programs of cooperation, development, and support. So in many ways, the fact that Colombia is no longer such an urgent matter for the United States is good news. Now, the Accords, as you correctly point out, the Accords kind of fall into this category. Five years ago, when the Accords were signed, I mean, they were the single biggest issue, if you will, in the Western Hemisphere, a conflict of nearly 50 years duration, 40 years anyway, 45, had been brought to conclusion, and there was great hope, expectation throughout the country, throughout the hemisphere, and perhaps throughout the world. A Nobel Peace Prize was granted to the then president of Colombia for the Accords. We're now at five plus years later. As they say about rose bushes, the bloom is off the rose now. All of the excitement and the thrill of the Accords have kind of faded, and we're now into the long slog of implementing an accord that basically is going to stretch out not just for years, but probably for decades 
as it tries to bring order from 45 years of insurgency and guerrilla activity in the field. My own view is Colombia, in a sense like Chile, albeit for different reasons, once Colombia emerges from the pandemic, which it will, as all nations will, you will see an explosion of economic growth. Once again, because Colombia, unlike Chile, it's not necessarily that their business model is so perfect, but rather because their economy had collapsed so completely in the dark years of the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century, that there is a tremendous amount of potential for growth, even now, five years after the accord in Colombia. And I predict we are going to see an economy that booms. We will continue to see growing tension, but healthy tension in a political sense between the center right and the center left, while trying to control the extremes at the far right and the far left in Colombia. I mean, Colombia does not yet have the model as Chile can say that it has, but it does have tremendous potential as it emerges from the pandemic uh, in the course of this year and the next. What would be my suggestions for the Biden administration? Keep in mind, many of those in the Biden administration had experience working the Columbia problem set during the Obama administration, including the individual who will be heading the Western Hemisphere Directorate of the National Security Council. So they are, they are familiar with Colombia and its issues. Uh, I predict the Biden administration will, will look to bring greater balance between the economic and political side of the relationship with the more traditional drugs, law enforcement, and security side of the relationship in the course of the next four years. I expect we will see this administration try to focus more on issues related to human rights, rule of law, democracy, and anti-corruption than did the previous administration. Although I would say that is not restricted to Colombia only. I suspect we'll find that in many areas around the world. And I would expect to see the Biden administration try to engage Colombia more as a partner in international organizations and broader cooperation with the international community, whether in the UN and its constituent organizations, the Organization for American States, and other organizations such, again, as the the Lima Group, as a partner. These are areas where I predict the Biden administration will focus more attention and more effort than did the Trump administration. Ambassador, that, that was a brilliant assessment and summary. The, the only thing I will probably add and, and maybe ask you is the impact that the Venezuelan refugees have no, on this country. Remember President Duque just a few days ago said that for a long-term solution for a peace accord in Colombia, we need to find a solution just in neighboring Venezuela, right? We, we have over 2 million refugees in their territory now and it's I don't see that situation getting better anytime soon. So any quick thoughts on that before we wrap up? Moises, your brilliance shines brighter than mine. Of course you are correct, because in Colombia, more so than any other nation on earth, the matter of Venezuelan refugees is a domestic political issue, an internal issue, as well as a foreign affairs issue. It is also a security issue, And it literally is a military issue to the extent that you have two armed forces 
one that is quite competent and quite skilled, and the other that is probably hopelessly overmatched, but nevertheless, they are watching each other across a very long border, across which, on a regular basis, hundreds of thousands of Venezuelan citizens are moving in one direction or the other. I would estimate, and I realize this is far more than the Colombian government will admit, but I would estimate there are roughly two million Venezuelan refugees in Colombia today. That is a substantial number because they are not dispersed in equal numbers throughout the country. They are overwhelmingly concentrated in a few limited areas, the city of Cucuta foremost among them, where some would estimate now that there are probably more Venezuelans residing in or around Cucuta than there are Colombians. And this obviously is a political issue for Colombia. So of all the countries of the world, uh, the one to which I, I believe we in the United States of America, and quite frankly, the rest of the world, have an obligation, a duty to listen to as they talk about solutions and the need for solutions to Venezuela, I think Colombia falls uniquely in that category. And their concerns, I think, are quite legitimate. When Colombia says they need help from the international community because the numbers are beginning to overwhelm their institutions and their capabilities in certain areas, the UNHCR should listen to them. The UN Human Rights Commission should listen to them. The World Health Organization should listen to them. The World Food Program should listen to them because they, in fact, are suffering the crisis more than any other nation on the planet. And this, by the way, allowing me to kind of conclude on Venezuela the the way I more or less started, this is why, at the end of the day, the international community must pay attention to and work to find a solution to the tragedy of Venezuela. And it is because it is producing what is rapidly becoming, if it has not already become, the greatest concentration of refugees who have fled their nation in the entire world. And as those refugees flee and settle, or at least establish themselves in other countries, they become at great risk of not just coming down with COVID and the coronavirus, but becoming mass transmitters of that virus as well. It is a humanitarian tragedy. It is a health tragedy. It is an economic tragedy. It is a human rights tragedy. It is a tragedy that the world cannot ignore. And Colombia is exhibit A of just how that tragedy can unfold. It's always a pleasure to have you and host you in 35 West. We hope to have you back sometime later this year. I really appreciate all of your thoughtful comments about the upcoming Biden administration priorities in the region and with a focus on Venezuela. So I also want to just thank you again and thank you all of you for listening in today. Sure thing, Moises. And talk to me again in six months and we'll find out whether I was right on anything that I said about the new administration. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.